Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. From the Architecture Foundation, I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with Jamie Fobert, a Canadian-born architect who has found himself increasingly working on projects at the very heart of British culture. Fobert, who has recently become chair of the Architecture Foundation's Board of Trustees, studied at the University of Toronto before moving to London in 1988, where he worked for eight years for David Chipperfield. Fobert is now best known for his work with major fashion brands and cultural institutions. He's designed retail spaces for Selfridges, Versace, and Givenchy, as well as major extensions and alterations to galleries and museums, including Tate St. Ives, Kettle's Yard in Cambridge, and most recently, London's National Portrait Gallery. I first encountered Fobert's work back in 2012 as a student at the University of Toronto, where he'd come to give a lecture. I remember in particular this one project that he presented, a scenography for a short-lived exhibition in the Tate Modern's Turbine Hall called The Upright Figure. It consisted of these three huge metal plates, atop which stood an array of figurative sculptures. And there was something so simple and so tantalizing about the design. The steel plates had these folded edges that kept visitors at an unusual distance from the work and defined this very circumscribed way of looking at it. In a way, the scenography itself became a kind of artwork, and at the same time transformed the perception of the objects on display, with the metal's bluish-black surfaces evoking in the sculptures all kinds of unexpected highlights and tones. It's this focus on visual phenomena, the interaction of space and light, that I find so intriguing about Jamie's work, and the way he talks about it, especially in the context of a discipline that, with its growing emphasis on climate and ecology, equity and identity, has understandably shied away from what might seem like the frivolities of aesthetic experience. As the interview unfolds, though, it becomes clear that it's at least in part aesthetic experience that we turn to for meaning and that shapes who we are and how we move through the world. I met with Jamie on a cool afternoon in late January of 2024 in a courtyard outside his office in Shoreditch, where we talked about, among other things, the art that most inspires his architectural practice and the links between these polarities of work and selfhood, aesthetics and identity. And now, my interview with Jamie Fobert. I think it's often the case that architects tend to have, in a way, one lecture, one version of a lecture that evolves over time, but the, the framework, more often than not, is quite consistent. The kind of anchoring references or influences. Yeah. So, I mean, we're going through a lecture of yours from 2008. Four. Or 2004. Yeah. It's a very early lecture of yours. And it seems like yesterday. <laughs> That's a sad thing about it. And I wondered if, in this conversation, we could try and revisit some of those influences in more detail. Starting with this quote that you often open your talks with by um, the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. Uh, it's a diary entry of his from the 1930s, and he's writing that 
working in philosophy, like work in architecture in many respects, is really more working on oneself, on one's own interpretation. I feel like there's so much in that line from him that to me is quite enigmatic and quite exciting when we think about architecture as a personal project. And I wonder if maybe through this conversation we can start to understand what it means for architecture to be a working on oneself. So I came upon this in quite a, uh, in quite a long journey. In 1993, I joined David Sheffield to do a summer school uh, in Vienna. So I was there for uh, four weeks. And of course, there was lots of time when we weren't with the students and I was there by myself. So I would just try and explore. So I went through all the classic stuff. And then someone had told me, well, there's a house by Wittgenstein. And I absolutely loved this house. Mm. And yet it wasn't by an architect. Mm. It's by a philosopher, one of the great 20th century philosophers. So I think it's because he had been an architect briefly and was a philosopher that he made this statement about how similar they are mm -hmm. in um, for him how similar they are so when we when I published uh, a book of our work mm. I kind of switched it and called it working in architecture because he's not saying being a philosopher or being an architect he's saying working in philosophy mm. like working in architecture I really like the idea that he saw this as work uh, and not some just the idea of, of what, what it means to work and that being a philosopher and being an architect somehow sounds like we don't do anything. <laughs> no. um, I, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, most architects, they seem to have this compulsion to proselytize. And I think with you, something I've noticed is that there's, there's a lot of faith in what architecture can do on its own terms in its own way, that architecture is itself a kind of language, and that to work in architecture is the goal. Is enough. Uh-huh, is enough. Is more than enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have taught, and I've really enjoyed teaching, though I hated the administrative side of teaching. And I have tried to write, but I'm very dyslexic, okay. and I find writing um, really difficult. Huh. So I have done it, and but I have, I have been greatly assisted with my um, office uh, manager, Benna Schellhorn, who's been with me for 15 years, and she's the writer. Amazing. But um, well, this piece that I wrote in the Architecture Review, and that was in 2008, mm. the article's about Hammershoy, uh -huh. and that because I'd always started my lectures with Hammershoy since 19... 87, 97, that when the, when, um, when the exhibition came up at the RA, I was asked to comment on it as an architect because it would have been the first time many architects in the UK had seen Hammershaw's work. Hmm. Whereas I, by mistake, had gone to Paris in 1997. And my, one of my first clients, who was a psychoanalyst, Stephen Gross, who's also a great writer, hmm. he said, well, if you're in Paris this weekend, you have to see this. Danish painter uh, that wasn't really 
uh, part of the kind of parlance of architects. They, he wasn't in the, he wasn't one of the references people made. Mm. He wasn't like Saint Jerome in his right. study, uh -huh. you know, that gets churned out. Um, it was much more something new, and 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 I went without knowing anything, and it was one of the most wonderful sort of days of my life. So maybe this is a good place to start then, if we could zero in on Hammershoy and the significance of his work to you. Hammershoy is a, a Danish 19th century painter. Yeah, early, 19, early 20th century. 19, the 1910s, 1920s, pre, really, we see his work mainly as pre-World War I. Okay. Um, and he was ostracized by the painting community in Denmark and no one saw any value in his work. So listeners might or might not be familiar with his work, but they're often interiors, or at least the, the paintings of his that most attract you, yes. are interiors of his own home, usually. Yes. He constantly painted the interior of his own flat uh, in an old building in Copenhagen um, with a courtyard. And I, what I loved about his work was that through repetition, he, he's able to hone in on a subject matter which is not the objects in the, in the room, and only through that repetition do you see that what he's actually trying to capture is the atmosphere in the room. Right. And that, and he captures it so magically. Uh, yeah, I mean, in that article you wrote, you're asking yourself, what is the subject? I mean, there's one painting called Sofa, I think. Yeah, it's this. Yes. Yeah. So maybe it's we can... It's extraordinarily beautiful painting. So it's called Sofa, and you're asking yourself, what is the subject in this painting? Is it the absence of a person? Is it the architectural elements? Whether it's, I guess in this case, the kind of wall or wainscoting or the furniture itself. And I think on closer inspection, you realize that the subject is in fact the soft patches of light falling across the surface of things. It's, it's as if the light is a kind of gentle visitor and it's resting on the sofa. So it's the, got a kind of... The light has a very, um, it has a, a, a really personal presence in the room. Mm -hmm. in, and it, it's a, his ability to see that, which I found fascinating. I mean, there's something almost metaphysical about this. And it also aligns with a particular moment in architectural education and theory around this interest in phenomenology, that experience and sense what we encounter with our eyes and with our hands and with our whole bodies is kind of the substance of architecture. I think it's a position that um, most architects would somehow not come out and say anymore. That there's a, in a way, reluctance to, to talk about the sensory or to talk about pleasure or phenomenal experience, if you want to call it that because it somehow seems like it's at the expense of the social, we could say. Yeah. Obviously, these two things aren't at odds with each other at all. Not at all. But what's interesting to think about this, this position, and maybe what we can unpack in this conversation, is that maybe there's something to recover or reclaim around this attitude. I think when I was writing this article, I was, I was still working on very small projects. and. Um, often single rooms on houses and things like that. And it was really important for me to not to 
fill every project with everything I knew I could possibly do in architecture. Each project doesn't have to sum up everything I have to say about architecture. Everything I would like to say about architecture can, can emerge over time through a, through a series of projects. And it is enough to make a wall and a window and to bring light in at the right place from the right direction and to have some materials that catch the light and some that shine in the light. What Hammershoy does extraordinarily well is he captures the glint of the varnish on the timber of the sofa mm -hmm. and the plush of the velvet. You can feel those materials in his paintings. So it was a way at that time for me to feel comfortable doing only very small moves. It's like the room in a way is the, the most fundamental building block for you. Everything begins in the great interior of the room. Yes. I think the 20th century, the way we, we were taught architecture and a lot of it, and the way most architects work, starting with external volume and starting with the bird's eye view and the model. Um, how to say this again? I mean, it's, it's object-driven in a way. It's very much object-driven and the city, and we've seen this, a city made of objects is not a, is not a very nice city. So this is interesting. I want to take this opportunity now to, to look at where you studied and understand what kind of ideas were in the air when you were a student. So I started in 1981 and the school was run uh, rigorously by one professor called Peter Pregnell, who was a behaviorist, a great friend of Hermann Hertzberger, and had a very rigorous idea of what architecture was and what it wasn't. It was all about the friendly column. Um, he was saying, you know, you can tell if your architecture is good by if a donkey would be comfortable in it. And he put up an image of a donkey in the Villa Savoy and said that he looks perfectly happy. Huh. And he put the donkey in the Mies van der Pavilion and said, this is a very unhappy donkey. Wow. <laughs> it was, it was, a, uh, and, but he was out of fashion within the architecture world, particularly in North America. Uh -huh. And other schools had already embraced postmodernism and the excitement of postmodernism. And so when I was in second year, we heard grumblings of a revolution of people wanting to bring in other tutors who were interested in postmodernism. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing imploded while I was in third year and Peter Pregnell left. And there became this moment of pluralism in the school. And then there were studios teaching postmodernism. And George Baird um, became the interim dean during that period to try and hold it all together. But I came to George because I was really interested in looking at a set of very badly built modernist towers in a very poor part of Toronto. Um, but I was fascinated by the whole area. It's called St. Jamestown. So I'd read Delirious New York. I was complete, you know, it, it felt very natural to then rebel against postmodernism already because mm -hmm. by the time I was in fifth year um, it felt like it was already passed it mm -hmm. was a it happened because it was late coming to the school it was very quickly it came through the school and went out the other end okay what but, an interesting yeah. time to be in an architecture school where there's this revolving door of architectural ideology and this kind of heterodoxy of positions and people were 
violent. <laughs> uh, re really, people wouldn't be in the same room with other people. People threw chairs. Oh my God. It was, you know, people took these things very passionately, mm. which was good in a way, because it meant, but it also me realized that architecture isn't one thing. Mm. Mm. It's a multitude of things. And it made me feel that what I had to do was decide what it was for me. Could you talk more about what you learned from George Baird? I mean, he was your thesis advisor. I read somewhere that you first met him in Rome, though. Yeah, I, I gave a speech. That's the speech. Uh, the, I spoke at his memorial two weeks ago in Toronto because he, he sadly passed away in And, and this is the, the former dean of U of T. Yeah. And I met him last summer and he asked me to speak at his memorial, which he was meticulously planning, as, well, as George did. Huh. He spoke to every student like we were a colleague. Uh, and we'd been through this quite terrible first and second year where everybody was subjected to a certain amount of psychological terror in the school. And George just treated everyone like they were, they were already architects. Mm. And we were just having a very friendly conversation. Mm. And he really, he also just knew so much about the 20th century. He'd met so many architects and understood the work. In a way, he was, he was a better commentator and teacher than he was architect. Mm -hmm. he, um, but he passed on this knowledge. So he was, um, he could speak about Carlo Scarpa or Alvar Aalto, about what they were doing spatially, instead of just obsessing about their details. Mm -hmm. Just a little bit more about Baird. I mean, he is a member of the architectural intelligentsia in a way yeah that east that kind of american east coast theorists taught at harvard yeah. in the 90s uh, published prolifically on alto and Caesar and hannah arendt as well loved hannah arendt completely um and is it true this may be hearsay but in rem cool houses delirious new york there's a painting of a bunch of gentlemen uh, in the downtown athletic club, in the locker room, naked, but they have their boxing gloves on, and one of them is eating an oyster. Yeah. And apparently, I've heard that is modeled after George Barrett. <laughs> well, I've never heard this. Okay. But um, at his memorial, they were showing slides of his life, uh -huh. and they they put up a page which was an article that George wrote that had that image. Okay. I've got it on my computer. Huh. I'll show it to you later. Anyway, and it was, uh, it was George's critique of Delirious New York. Okay. So if it is him, he republished his own <laughs> picture. <laughs> I just, I didn't the know only that. reason I mention it is because oftentimes when we talk about these, what you could say now, historical figures yeah. um, of generations past, there's a kind of stuffiness that inevitably makes its way in. There, but he was definitely in the mix, I guess, is what I'm saying. What was extraordinary was how much of his time he gave to students mm. and um, to the school and to Toronto as a, as a place. He, it was his uh, hometown and he loved it and he fought for it mm. through you know, the whole period of 
highways being plowed through the downtown and things. He was very, very active, and that's why he was such great friends with the mayor. Mm. He, he, um, he didn't see architecture as making individual buildings for clients, which he did. He saw it as a much broader, and in a way, I, um, I don't do those sorts of things that much. George was a much more, uh, had a much broader sense of what he should be doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm much, and I'm quite content to be working on the work. Do you want to go inside? Or are you, yeah, how are you feeling? Cold. Yeah. It's so nice being out with the birds singing. Yeah. Beautiful here. Ooh, I'm starting to shiver, yeah. There's an interesting trajectory here from Toronto to London that I want to trace with you now. Um, because in a lot of ways, it seems totally improbable that this expat Canadian would somehow find himself working for a practice like Chipper Fields and then over time making work at the very center of British cultural institutions, whether it's the Tate or the National Portrait Gallery, Kettle's Yard. So how did this all, <laughs> how, how does it happen? Uh, well, when I was eight, I, I was totally in love with Oliver, the musical. Uh. No, <laughs> That's it, no, it wasn't that at all. I had a scholarship for having done my fifth year drawing, got given the drawing prize. And it came with a thousand Canadian dollars and I banked it and put it away to come to London. Mm. Bought me a plane ticket and two months accommodation. And I thought if I can't get a job in an architecture practice, I'll work in a pub huh. for a few months and go home. And I asked a number of people, including Ed Jones and George Baird, and a few of my colleagues in classes who'd been in London to suggest five architecture practices that were not the big ones, like not Foster, not Sterling, not um, Grimshaw. And each of them wrote a list, and everyone on every list was different, except each list ended with David Chipperfield, and they all had in brackets, young, small. And I think David had just published the Isimiyaki shop on Sloan Street, and that was it. Mm. So I came to London, I sent out my CVs, and I came back to the um, house where I had rented a room. And they said, oh, there's a message on the answer machine for you. It was the <laughs> next day. And it was David Shipfield's secretary asking me if I'd come in for an interview. So I went in the next day, and he offered me a job for three weeks. And I'd been in London for a week. Um, and uh, I just felt incredibly comfortable. And there was David, and there were five others, or six others. And we were working in a room at the back of the then 9H gallery. And so th there'd be, when there was a show on in the 9H, we were all cramped in the back, mm -hmm. in this one room with no daylight. And when the show was down, we could come out and uh, occupy the, the gallery space. And once I started working with David, it just was uh, such a wonderful experience. 
that I really, I didn't see any reason to go back to Canada. Mm. And then the recession hit and it was terrible in Toronto and, and David had just enough work to keep us going. And I mean, you were there for nine years. It's longer than you were in architecture school. Yes. And elsewhere, you've explained that it was its own kind of education in a way. I, I realized at one point that I, it, was my, it was my master's degree mm. to, to work with David. Who needed to go to university? Well, you could go to Harvard and be taught by David. And, and to be taught by David in the studio was much more powerful. And it, it seems like a lot of what you learned there had to do with accepting constraints or translating constraints into opportunities instead of staunchly defending one's position as an architect, kind of rolling with the opposition. I remember you explaining there was a Q&A after a lecture. This was one of the key lessons in a way, an agreeableness almost. Yes. It's very hard for me to distinguish um, what I learned from, from architecture school and what I learned from the rest of life mm. and from what I learned from David. Mm. But what I learned from David is substantial. Mm. And um, I still learn from David, as anyone should, um, who pays attention. So, but there were many real lessons. I mean, David published his book, Theoretical Practice, while I was in the office, and I read it. Mm. And I understood that everything he wrote in that book was true, but we'd never spoken about any of that. It was a, there was an unspoken uh, theory that was being implemented daily in the work, but it was never spoken of as such. Because when you're, when you're actually working, um, you talk about the work. And you talk about benign, quite benign things in the work. Um, the theory that David was learning himself at that time wasn't spoken of. Mm. We had to wait for David and, to publish it in a book before we could read about it. That's interesting. I mean, there's a kind of resonance to certain quotes that you've collected over the years from different artists who you've explained um, in past lectures. You look to for solace. There's one I want to read, which is by uh, Garrett Willems. I love this quote. Who's saying that looking is a way of knowing. Sensory perception is a mental process, even though it is one without words. And in the slide you had with that quote, you underlined, I think the emphasis was yours, without words. Yes, it was. And the fact that um, I didn't know that you were dyslexic, but I, I'm really interested now in um, your relationship to language. It's, it's understandable that everyone tries to find a language to describe everything. And yet some of the most important things really cannot be described in language. Mm. And they are music and nature, and they should be architecture. I mean, I definitely am a strong believer in the fact that you can't expect the, the artist or the designer or the architect to explain themselves outside of their medium. And so it makes perfect sense that there is this, in a way, skepticism around what language can do when it comes to understanding architecture, that it is first and foremost an experience. 
Um, but at the same time, it's almost impossible to detach the, the kind of written or verbal description from the space itself. I mean, I read the introduction to this book, uh, the monograph of the practice that was published in 2015, Working in Architecture, which again is borrowing from this Wittgenstein quote. And in it, I mean, you asked George Baird to write an introduction, as well as um, Joseph Rickford. And looking at the two descriptions, there's something interesting that emerged, which is totally about the way the work is described. There's a kind of agreement, I think, that comes out in certain words that um, were strangely repeated like over and over again. Yeah, and one was this word circumspect and reasonableness. <laughs> and uh, ameliorative, uh, urban decorum. To me, the word circumspect is really interesting because it suggests that one has a certain responsibility to do things properly and safely and carefully. And that in a lot of the work, especially the residential work that Baird and Rick were, were looking at, from all outward appearances, the project was almost invisible or blended in quite seamlessly with its context. And that really the drama of the work was entirely internal. That there were all these explosions going on inside the plan, but from the face of things, um, there was a kind of straight outward face to the city. And I wonder like, what you make of that, that reading of the work, that there's a kind of, there are two sides to it in a way. There was an evolution from doing these small projects, which were rooms, and being very concerned about the architecture of the interior, which is the opposite of interior design. It's, it's a, it's a, and it's something I really dislike in the 20th century, the separation of building and interior mm. that would never have existed previously. And that architecture dwells in the interior um, as much or more than it, it should, and that so many buildings are extraordinary on the outside and unbelievably disappointed inside, and yet that's where people dwell. And, and as the projects evolved and became larger, the, the central concern of making a spatial experience internally remained. And so I would always resolve the interior sequence of spaces, volumes, and light, and what it's made from before looking at what that meant to the outside, and then trying to resolve it in the city in a very calm and neutral way. I was not interested in making marks in the city. That's, that's what I mean. I think it's this outward neutrality. And in, in fact, in, in certain projects, um, I've taken it to a point where I realize it's slightly perverse, where I actually tried to disguise that the, there is anything there on the outside, mm -hmm. so that your experience of arriving inside is highly emotive and, and pleasurable and calming and many other things, and it's all about the interior. Um, I think this is a very much a reaction against the icon buildings of, of the 90s when I was working and being mm. very dismayed by the way architects, um, self-indulgent architects, creating 
um, shouting buildings that, that within the city I felt were chaotic mm -hmm. and really unple unpleasant uh, because they wanted to just... For me, I just felt like people exercising their ego. One of the, my favorite things is coming up upon a space in an old building that I think is really meticulous and really beautiful and not having, no one knows who the architect was. Um, and it's not about going around to famous buildings. It's about spaces and often in Georgian houses and things. There's just incredibly beautifully, well-proportioned, calm spaces of volume and light. And no, you know, somebody might know who the architect is, but mm -hmm. the viewer doesn't. And no, people, People don't go around cities with plaques saying who the architect is. People in, in people, this city, they do. <laughs> they do. Oh, they, they mostly know who lived and died in the buildings. Uh -huh. But architecture has to be experienced by strangers. So I designed the building for strangers. I don't, I, the last thing I want to do is design for architects to look at what I do. There is one plaque on a building of yours. I know, but I didn't plan it. <laughs> this is Dodie Muse. There's a little plaque on the side. The, the, the owners, who were really wonderful clients, um, they commissioned the brick makers to, to make a brick with Jamie Fulbright Architects stamped in it. Huh. But they didn't tell me. <laughs> and they had it built into the wall before I knew. So this is so this is quite exciting for me because I feel like we're getting into strange territory here. Um, and it, to me, it has to do with a certain anti-iconoclasm that you're expressing. This reluctance to have the work present itself outwardly as being somehow different. And for that experience to reveal itself instead once you're inside. That it seems like what you're saying is you have a responsibility to the anonymous pedestrian to not be outlandish. Well, I, I, I don't want it to be anonymous or banal either. This is not about quiet architecture that is so banal that no one notices it. I, I, um, as the projects have evolved, they have become very expressive. So for instance, no one could say that Tate St. Ives is a kind of modest thing. You know, that when people apply these words like modest, I find that kind of strange, because often they're very, uh, they're bold, but they're not, um, they're bold on the inside. Mm -hmm. And they're not looking to be quiet in some ways. So it's complex. Yeah. So it's complex. Yeah, but this is something, maybe if we go back to um, what you were discussing outside in the courtyard around Baird and his focus on the city um, his advocacy for good urbanism. You, there was a moment where you were kind of wistfully off and mentioned that that's not the work that you do. That somehow, to you, the work is less about urbanism or engaging with the city, and it's more about, I guess, the interior. I mean, would you, could you, could you but, elaborate uh, a bit on I was very concerned. Uh, uh, let me, how do I say this? I am not exclusively interested in interior. I am an architect. And when we have built and buildings have facades, I'm very interested in how they work in their context and in the language of the city. 
So the house in Doughty Mews has a one street facade and one Mews facade, and how those two facades negotiate the corner, the solidity of it as a building uh, from the outside belays how open and transparent it is on the inside. The, it's, it's not just an architecture of interior. Mm -hmm. And again with, say, St. Ives, I was highly concerned with uh, how this site would negotiate between the town and the sea, how there could be a public route across its roof connecting the very steep path to the sea to the car park above. Mm -hmm. um, so there are urban... When, when a project is urban, I approach it with a lot of concern for, mm -hmm. for the city and its fabric. And I mean, there are other urban scale projects, actually. I'm thinking of, is it BHV? Yeah. Uh, in Paris, which is a, a large department store linked by a series of courtyards. And it, it's uh, one very large block of Haussmann in Paris, mm -hmm. which are 30 apartment buildings wherein, um, I think in the 1930s, Béagevé bought all the buildings. And what they wanted to create was a set of independent shops uh, let by Béagevé and connected through courtyards and opening up the courtyards and making them public. Much like the Burlington Arcade, another project uh, your practice has done, it's in part at least about the surface, yes. Uh, the surface of the ground, the way it's treated, and the way these kind of new um, materials and patterns can start to render pedestrian life a little more sensuous. <laughs> yes, I mean it's probably the most classical thing that we've done. It's, it was such an extraordinary project to be asked to consider just the floor. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's another floor, a cosmetic floor. Oh, yes. This is for... For Versace. Versace. Yeah. I mean, the, the work that I've done and the practice has done in retail mm -hmm. is a curious anomaly. Yeah. But one that I learned at Chipperfields, yeah. because David has always um, worked in retail. And while other architects are completely snobbish about retail, um, I, I learned from David's that, I mean, the first project I ever saw of Chipperfields was his Isimiaki store on Sloan Street, and it was an extraordinarily beautiful thing. Yeah, let's talk more. I think this is an interesting vein, retail in general, because there are a, a lot of other quite um, high-profile luxury retail clients you've worked for, including Givenchy, Selfridges, and many more besides. I, I was suspicious of working for retailers, but I had, I, I had watched David work with retailers and realized that there's an extraordinary freedom that you're given. And the people who run these brands are very aware of the enjoyment that people have um, when they should have when they go into these stores and how people can read the language of materiality. People do read the language of materiality and of form in relation to the brand. So the first retail spaces we did were for uh, organic products called Aveda. Mm -hmm. And they were selling pure uh, products that you could trust in recycled plastic. But they had always sold them on on plastic laminated surfaces. And I came to them and said, 
you need to uh, embed the, the shopper with the idea that they can trust your product. So we're, you know, at that point, concrete was still perfectly reasonable material to use, but solid concrete tables and solid timber, mm. uh, solid oak with really quite rustic fixings and uh, cast black steel. So we worked with black steel for Aveda. That's where the whole, it started, mm. that these materials that you could name and they were solid and their surface was the same as their interior, mm. that there was no distinction, mm-hmm. created a whole sense of trust. And then working with other brands like Givenchy first and really looking at the history of the brand from Hubert de Givenchy and his incredible work to Audrey Hepburn's Little Black Dress. It was like there's great, uh, and this is culture in France. This is not superfluous. This is like, this for, in France, this is pure culture. I thought the creative directors like Riccardo Tisci, I'm Donatella Versace, who I really loved working with, who was a, a very quiet and very intelligent and amazing woman. They viewed you as an architect, as a colleague, because they're a designer and you're a designer and they do their job very well. So once they decided that you understood them and you understood the brand, um, they said, well, then now you do your work. I'll do mine, you do yours. And yes, they would uh, be fully involved, but they also listened and they trusted you in a way that other clients who would try and get involved in design it themselves, they would never cross a certain boundary. And in fact, equally so, working with arts organizations was exactly the same. So it sounds like you found your ideal clients, like you found, you found your tribe of collaborators that appreciate and respect the work of the architect, but it's incredibly rarefied actually. Like most architects would never have the chance to work for Donatella Versace or the head curator of the Tate Modern. And in fact, at one moment, and I did tell Nick Siro to this, that I had only once, uh, I had been in Milan in the afternoon and had a meeting with Donatella and gone to see uh, uh, one of the uh, shows in the evening. And then very early in the morning, flown back to London and went to Tate to present work on Tate's and Ives. And I said to Nick Sorda, I mean, <laughs> within 24 hours, I've had a meeting with you and Donatella. Mm-hmm. He thought that was very funny. It is funny though, I mean, it's incredibly unique. But and they also, I could see more similarities between them than uh-huh. differences. But what I'm, what I'm thinking about now um, is what it would mean to, to pursue work that is much more quotidian and vulnerable to external influence but it's also somehow more populist in a way. Like I'm thinking about housing or something. Yeah, I've, I have said often that I would love to, to do projects that are less rarefied, mm. but no one's ever asked us to do housing. Mm. And yet we do, we, we do houses and they're, I think, very good, but we could apply all we know about that to very low cost housing, but somehow making that shift is incredibly difficult, but maybe it will happen now that we're talking about it. 
Well, that's the thing I'm probably most curious about, how these experiments in single-family houses, in these kind of upscale private houses, and these experiments in luxury retail, and these experiments in grand public institutions with very accommodating clients, how that would translate into a more populist architecture. <laughs> I don't know, but I would love to find out. Uh. I think one of the things uh, that Agnes Martin says in her writings, which I love because she writes um, with this very rounded handwriting in these school uh, notebooks. And one of the things she talks about is that, uh, that life should be an adventure and that an adventure is never knowing next where it's going to go. And, and what I found really extraordinary about my life as an architect is that people have this idea that somehow as an architect you've planned your career meticulously and it's all just happened the way you meant it. And people have said, oh, how did you get into it? It's like, I have no idea. These, you, you follow your work and, and uh, people are drawn to it if they're going to be drawn to it and people approach you if they feel they can. Mm -hmm. And you never know... Uh, from year to year where you'll be. What, what's interesting to me about this is that somehow it has to do with the honesty you have as an architect for your interests and what, what you're drawn to. And that you really do wear your, your aesthetic appreciation on your sleeve. As, as, like, as we can see with this Hammershoy essay, that you're unabashedly in love with the way light can form a column in a room. <laughs> uh, the way light can sit on a plush sofa. Right. The, the, and that's okay. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> and somehow that intense attraction to architecture as phenomena seems to have brought you into these situations. I want to end this conversation by looking at some art with you. Okay. Um, so in a lecture you gave at the University of Toronto in 2015, um, you referred to a set of images that I guess had been projected before the lecture was recorded. It was a kind of pre-lecture role or reel. Um, and you just referred to it in passing kind of cryptically as being images that you would turn to for solace when you were struggling um, as a, as a independent practitioner when you were in particularly dire moments, I guess, that you'd look to these pictures for some kind of guidance. And I became incredibly curious as to what they were. <laughs> and we have them here now. And um, I just wonder if we could go through a few of them and if, if you could speak to them a bit. So the first is a set of etchings by Morandi. And they start in 1933, I think. And they're very, you can see every object, it's very realistic, it's on a nice 45 degree angle. And what, what I wanted to show in this series is there's about 12 of them, and they, they move from 1933 to 1960. And what happens is that the picture plane flattens and perspective disappears. Um, so we're, these early ones, you can see they're three-dimensional, but if you mm -hmm. scroll forward, you can see that they're flattening and it's the, you're the, in this case, the objects are three-dimensional, but the context isn't. And then the objects oh, lose their, the, the objects lose their three-dimensionality. And what emerges in the end is 
these abstract forms where he's more interested in the, the, the space rendered between the objects and the objects themselves. And what I found extraordinary about this, and I've been to the room that Mirandi worked in, and it's a tiny room, and there was one table and all those objects are still there. Hmm. And he just rearranged, imagine from 1933 to 1965, rearranging the same objects and drawing them again and again and again. But within that repetition was an evolution. There was a learning process. Mm -hmm. and, and I found and, and a simplification. And this is one of the last, this is 1963. But if you know Mirandi's work, you, can, you know what objects they are. It's a, for me that... So why I would come back to this for when I said solace, it was looking at <clears throat> trying to be careful about time and about people rushing mm. and the, the highly competitive nature of architecture, the world of architecture and the competition system and the magazines and all that noise. And just trying to come back and say, look, here is someone who I respect hugely, who never left his room. And that I'm, I'm not Mirandi, I'm not working on one set of objects, but, and like Hammershoy, I'm, I'm interested in people who had the ability to step away and had a, a private intellectual life. And so we're also, we just scroll past um, pictures by Eduardo Chileda, um, as well as Helio Otizia. Yeah, it's very the wonderful Brazilian artist mm -hmm. who, who oh, this one period of his work where he was making forms of overlapping squares that are extraordinarily beautiful. But um, he had a, again, all these artists are artists whose work I experienced in the flesh, mm -hmm. in exhibitions. And that's been one of the great pleasures of living in London for the last 30 years, mm -hmm. uh, is being able to see incredible exhibitions and understand artists' work. And then there's also stuff by Joseph Alvarez in here as well as Agnes Martin. And they're all intensely committed to working out a certain form or a certain figure or a certain series. There's a lot of repetition and, and um, revisiting of the same problem over and over again. And I think I Partly why I go back to these is these are artists, and I am not an artist, I'm an architect, and they're very different things. And artists working alone in their studio over 35 years is the antithesis of what I have to do every day. Exactly. Which is, first of all, be with this wonderful group of people in my studio, but then, you know, endless meetings with clients and QSs and going through with planners and historic England and all the, you have to, and stakeholders, it's just a nightmare what you go through as an architect. Um, and you can let it drive you insane. So I think maybe I come back to these works because they're also so far removed from my daily life. Mm -hmm. and, and yet one hopes that the, the work that you produce has the same resonance with the viewer as this, these do even though the process that you've been through has got absolutely nothing to do with the process that that wonderful, you know, Albers is doing painting in his basement 
our Mirandi in this tiny room in Bologna, or mm -hmm. Agnes Martin out in the desert, mm -hmm. painting and by herself, living by herself. But actually this quote by Stravinsky uh, that I, I found, again, writing another essay. Um, so this is part of the same pre-lecture reel. You've had some quotes in there as well. And this is about freedom and constraint. And, and Stravinsky is writing about when he's writing music. And so I found this really intriguing. And he, it's a set of lectures he gave in Boston in the 40s. And he says, my freedom consists in my moving about within a narrow frame that I've assigned myself for each and every one of my undertakings. I shall go further. My freedom will be so much the greater and more meaningful the more narrowly I limit the field of my action. Whatever diminishes constraint diminishes strength. And for me, this is the antithesis of people who, who think freedom is in being allowed to do any, allowing yourself to do anything anywhere in terms of architecture. So for, for me, the, the freedom is often in deciding the constraints of, of, of your field of work mm. and, in, and enjoying that. Mm -hmm. So I was looking at these artists in a little more detail and um, I didn't know much about Helio. There is a, a line from him I came across, which is that we get to know ourselves through what we do. Ah, well, that's Wittgenstein in reverse, isn't it? And in fact, I don't know what I am. So he's kind of seeking out himself through his work. And that, um, yeah, there, there was a, a real echo of Wittgenstein in there, in a way. When Wittgenstein says it's a working on oneself, he, he, he isn't implying that he's done it and he yeah. knows. He's also saying it's a continuous process. Mm -hmm. And that continuous process, if you can keep it in focus, mm -hmm amongst the chaos of being in practice, uh, I think is the task of being an architect. This is such a cringy question, but what have you, what have you learned about yourself? Then? <laughs> what, no. What's been revealed to you about who you are, how you work? Oh, that's, that's a really impossible thing to say. It is. Yeah. No, and I don't think anyone can answer that question other, because it's a process and you, you're in the, you're midstream, mm -hmm. you know, I have... That's a totally unfair question. It's, no, I don't, <laughs> it is an unfair question, but the answer is the same as his answer was, that mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that one of the things I've learned to understand is that I, I can trust myself and that often um, the elements that I do in a project that I feel are safe are often disappointing hmm. and the things that I do that I'm terrified are uh, a mistake are almost always the, the things that other people enjoy about the work the most that it's it's uh, it's, it's when something almost comes from your unconscious and when it feels foreign when you draw it and feels alien and feels odd that it, it's probably going to be the right thing. One thing I wanted to ask about was how you see your 
role of the Architecture Foundation and what, um, what drew you to pursue this place as um, the chair of the Board of Trustees, what it means to you to inhabit that role. I think the role of a trustee is a really interesting one. You don't generate work um, and you, you don't uh, make the work, but you're, you're there as a critical friend. You're, you're there to look out for pitfalls. You're there to make suggestions. There are amazing trustees uh, who all bring their knowledge to the table. At first I felt, well, what do I know that's going to be helpful? I don't know developers. I don't know. I'm not a curator. But what's surprising after this much time is having worked with lots of galleries, having worked with the work that we've done, you've accumulated uh, a position and you're able to, to give advice, which I would never have imagined I could. And I've really enjoyed it. And I just feel that I'm, I was teaching and I'm not teaching the, these days and I might later, um, but that I've, I've started to support Accelerate, which is a, a program run by Open City, which mm -hmm. tries to involve uh, high school students from diverse backgrounds, from low income backgrounds into the world of architecture. And we have three of them come in the studio every year and the young people in the office guide them and, and do projects with them. Um, I support the uh, LGBTQ plus architecture group mm -hmm. uh, because I remember being a young gay architect in London. You didn't speak about it, let alone meet to mm. have a drink. Mm. And I felt if when they were setting that up that uh, I'd be happy to help them out. So what group is this? It's um, it's it's an independent group and it's for um, for the whole sort of anyone in uh, working in architecture who's uh, from queer community who, and it's just a social mm. to allow them to get together, to meet, to march in pride together. I mean, I go there, I feel like they're grandparents, but, <laughs> um, but I'm very happy. So I've, I've started to, to see a, a role as I'm getting older in uh, supporting nonprofit organizations that I think are really important and giving my time to the mm. Architecture Foundation um, and allow and just facilitating and actually being somebody who's part of a much broader architectural community. So I've, I've just realized recently all of these things happen kind of naturally and over time mm -hmm. and they, they're evolving. Another role that I have within the architectural community which isn't just about my practice um, and being on the Architecture Foundation Board of Trustees, you have to assume that you will gain no benefit from this because you can't be promoting yourself while you're a trustee. So you have to do it altruistically and be thinking about the broader community and not about your own practice, which is quite a healthy thing to do. You mentioned briefly just your experience about being a young gay architect. <laughs> yes. Which, is that, is that worth talking about? I think that there's... There's such, a, there's such an emphasis now on identity yeah. in architectural practice. And there are a lot of cultural rewards in a way for foregrounding identity in practice. Yeah, but it, I think because of my age and uh, because of, of the, the way the profession was, I always um, kept it very, very separate. 
and I, I would never like celebrate it. I just didn't speak about it. Um, I think it's partly why I always have felt I, that I that essentially I had to feel very comfortable with a client in order to work with them. And part of that was wanting to avoid homophobia and wanting to avoid embarrassing situations and, and, and people who, I don't know, because the, it wasn't, it, I, you know, I went through architecture school in the 80s and I started in 81 and by 84 the AIDS epidemic was sweeping through Toronto and I knew people who, in the school who died who were friends. Mm. And uh, it was really horrible. And I was 22. And you know, I could have easily have been swept away along with everyone else. So that, that moment, and I came from an evangelical Baptist family, which is, uh, but I had very um, wonderful parents. But the church was completely, at that point, hysterically anti-gay. So there's lots of complexity there that mm -hmm. to unpack would be quite difficult. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you learn to do as a, as a, as a young gay man in the 80s in school, in, our, in high school and in a Baptist church, is you learn very clearly how to split yourself mm. into multiple people. The, the, the boy who goes to church on Sunday morning the guy who goes to high school and, and is okay with all the guys, and the person who has a secret sexual life they pursue somewhere else. So and it's a very dangerous way to live a life where you, you, be, you become very adept at lying and very adept at, at having multiple existences. And, and I've, my, maybe the working on myself has been a, a journey of becoming a single human being uh, where, I, where none of these things are s separated. I think uh, young people are very uh, used to seeing themselves as single entities and where they would never see, like, so for me even, for me even in the 80s and 90s, I would always see myself as an architect and then I would see myself as a gay man and that these two never interacted and they had nothing to do with each other. The one had no effect on the other than, uh, and yet now I, I would, you would, no one would say that. Uh -huh. It's a curious thing. It's, it comes out of the way you're forced, you, we were forced to live our lives. Mm. It's way too complicated for today, for this talk, I think. Yeah, but uh, at the same time, I think it's, it's very useful to hear what you just said as a kind of archival note or critical anecdote of what it meant to have grown up in a certain period of time and uh, formed one's own sense of self and work in a certain period of time. I think the AIDS epidemic made me value life and just and small, um, joyful moments. And because I just, I realized at a certain point how lucky I was that I was still alive at all. I, I, I think being an outsider also came with being a, Canadian in London, all these things merge. So always looking at things from the outside has, has, is, I think, a really incredibly valuable way to spend your life. If I had been straight, I would probably never become an architect because I was so embedded in the church. I would have just, I would have made a great preacher. No um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, you like, 
because of who I am, I just had to leave that, and I had to leave this, and then I, you know, and then then you look back at your life and you're critical of it, mm-hmm. and um, by the time you're 18, you know, I was three or four quite distinct, different individuals that I could turn on and turn off whenever. I always thought I was just me, but I only let certain people see certain parts of me, mm-hmm. and you get very, very good at that, mm. and it's really not a good way to spend your life. So the process of becoming just one person who can talk about Wittgenstein, who, have, who struggled with the same thing, mm. obviously, had a terrible sexual life. As did Helio. Really? Yeah, yeah. and Agnes Martin. And Agnes Martin. Well, there we go. And um, God knows about Mirandi, Mar- Mar- never married, never left his sisters. Right. I've never heard anyone speak about his sexuality. It's interesting that the work of these people really spoke to you. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I've never thought about that. I mean, it's, it feels kind of crass and inappropriate to, to try and draw any conclusions about this experience. But at the same time, and we can totally just obliterate what I'm about to say, but th- to me, there's something quite intriguing here about the sense of outward decorum that people like Baird and Reich were, were noticing in the work and the inward complexity and the fact that these two things seem to be in some way at odds. And it's not, it's not at all duplicitous or dangerous in the way that you're suggesting um, it is to live one's life that way. And yet, maybe this is a part of oneself in the work, a part of yourself in the work, well, that's impossible for me to say, but it may well be. I mean, we, we are who we are, and, uh, and your childhood experience is something you never go away from. On the other hand, one of the most beautiful spaces in my memory is the, this incredibly uh, simple and very elegant church that we went to, which was built around 1890. And because it was, it was a congregationalist church, when it was built, it had beautiful, simple timber columns and a flat arch and no other decoration and, and very little decoration, but it had these uh, really wonderful proportion. And the sunlight that came in on a Sunday morning was very, very beautiful. And you have to sit in this room for you know, hours every week mm-hmm. as you're growing up. It wasn't a negative experience. Mm-hmm. And the community of the church that my parents went to were wonderful. My, when my mother passed away and I went back to Canada and I went to her funeral, half the church came who I knew when I was a child. They're all amazingly wonderful people who were all totally excited about the life I was leading and asked me where my husband was. And, you know, it's just like that was really emotional for me because I, you don't go back. You know, you, one of the things you do like, but when you decide to leave, it's quite, you know, you leave all your high school friends behind, you leave all your church friends behind. And now I realize that uh, it, they probably didn't, they didn't turn their back on me, I turned my back on them because I felt I had to, to become this person that I thought I needed to be. And then meeting them again, 40 years later, they're all totally wonderful people. <laughs> so. That's too complicated uh, to read. It's, but every are, human being is a complex person. Thing. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I think what's been so beautiful about this conversation is that we've begun to 
reveal that, that complex mixture of what goes into making architecture, I guess, in terms of oneself and what one, one brings to one's work. So thank you again, Jamie. My pleasure. It's been, uh, feels a little bit like therapy, this last bit. <laughs> but no, um, I've really enjoyed it. Scaffold is an Architecture Foundation production. I'm Matthew Bunderfield, and I make the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes. Thanks to Jamie Fobert, thanks as always to Scandal Lynn, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time.